thank you, Philip, wherever you are, my dear brother, for giving me the opportunity to serve the Lord Jesus through the teaching of his word. And we've just had Judges 5 read to us, but we're actually going to Judges 4 first. So if you'd like to turn in the scriptures to Judges chapter 4, I'll be in the New King James, if you're, if you're putting it up behind me. So, we've had a bit of an emotional ride this week, and I think it's quite good for us all just to take our focus at the moment away from things outside this, not just even outside this building, things in this world, and have our focus on the Word of God and on the Lord himself. Let's close our eyes and just be in his presence. We are in his presence. Father, we acknowledge that we are before you and that we are seated with the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. And we plead with you, our Father God, with confidence that you would speak to us and that you would share the bread of life. I confess, Father, my unworthiness, my weakness, and often my foolishness. And I thank you that the blood of the Lord Jesus goes on cleansing me from every sin. And I want to come, Father, to your word tonight with holy hands. Remove from me my own thinking. Put me as part of the backdrop, Father, that all the glory might go to your glorious, your firstborn, your son, the Lord Jesus your beloved, whom we worship at your right hand. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, to point us to the Lord Jesus and teach us of him, to tell us things to come. May I submit myself, Spirit of living God, under your authority and power, and may each heart before you hear be touched and tenderized to the word, nourished and encouraged. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, we're going to look at Deborah, a fascinating woman. And if you wanted a title, I would call it Deborah, a prophetess, and a mother in Israel. And we'll have to explain what we mean by that later. We're looking at a time when it says, we'll just start the chapter verse 1, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of Yahweh. Oh, by the way, I will, when you see Lord up there, L-O-R-D in blocks, it's not, it, it's not the word Lord. The Lord, word Lord is Adonai and is a capital L and small O-R-D. That was put in there by people who translate the Bible, well-meaning, well-meaning, for an untranslatable and almost impronounceable word. It's Y-H-W-H. And it's drawn from the meaning of God's name, I am that I am, and it's pronounced Yahweh. Yahweh. So I will use Yahweh. Sometimes I forget, but normally I will use Yahweh. So the children of Israel did again what was wrong in the sight of Yahweh. That's a, that's a tragedy, isn't it? Here there is something that's tragic and, the, and frequent in Israel. They get all sorted out with God. They're going on with God. They actually, you know, 
they didn't come to church on Sundays. They, they didn't have the kind of system that we had. They, they lived their lives, and they attended the temple events. Well, one temple was the tabernacle events, when they required, were required to, and they had annual things that they dealt with, which they actually didn't do when they were going through the wilderness. They actually, in terms of spiritually, or if I might say religiously, they had a pretty easy life. The problem was they had a heart of wickedness like we all have, and a tendency to, it's called to apostatize, to depart from the truth. And they did it again. And they had good leaders. So when they had good leaders that were giving them God's word and were holding them together and giving direction and pointing to the Lord, yeah, they trogged on and followed. But you know what? A leader went, ah, they just went back in the old ways. And that's what's happening here. A frequency, unfortunately. And in their own eyes, they thought they were doing all right. You know? And when left unchecked, what happens to a field, a garden with weeds? Does it get less weeds and more flowers? Of course not. What happens to a heart unchecked with sin? Sin gets worse and worse and worse. It slips from just a natural wickedness that we all have to something that the New Testament calls carnality. To and you know, you know some people who are just so worldly and wicked. You know, you've met folks like that. You know, even before you were saved, you probably met people and you, well, I know I did. I lived, I lived in a flat with them before I was saved. And then you know the scripture and then goes on to say the next step is the demonic. Okay. And so here the people have slipped away. And God still loves them. He has made promises. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Reiterated promises to Moses. And he's going to make sure that this people come right through to the end. And if I point to what's happening in the world today and the center that Israel has, God has still not left them. God has still not given up. Okay. Even although they are still, by and large, an apostate people. Okay. Now, I'm pro-Israel, pro-Jewish, don't get anything wrong in what I'm saying, but you know, only 10% of the nation of Israel over there in, in the Middle East are actually religious, about 10%. Okay. They're not all going around with curls and big black hats. Most of them are secular, hedonistic, worldly guys and girls, okay. away from God. I praise the Lord that I think 1967, there were three Messianic fellowships, and now there's something like 70 or whatever. Praise the Lord for that. But Israel has followed this trend, fall away from God. And God used pressure on them, pressure to repent. He brought judgment. And he sent, there's a whole catalog of this throughout the book of Judges. And he sends people along to give them a hard time so that they'll cry to God, oh Lord, things aren't going well. The same with us, isn't it? Yeah. So often, if you're not really going on with the Lord, you're just kind of living your life. But you love Jesus, and you come here on Sunday and so on. But, you know, between, between Monday and next Saturday night, you know, there's, Jesus doesn't feature too highly. You bet you he'll put some pressure on you that you're going to shout, Oh, Lord, help me. That's happening. That happens. It happened then. It happens today. Divine judgment. Now, don't think of divine judgment, going, God going around with a big cane to belt the living daylights out of you, right? That's not what it's about. It's about applying loving pressure to, excuse me when I say how I express this, but applying loving pressure to bring you to his bosom, to hold you so that you will change. And that's what God seeks to do here. So Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Hesheret Hagoim. 
It means uh, the engravers of the Gentiles. So these are the Gentiles. Engravers probably is the inference. I didn't do too much study on that because there's too many other good things. But engravers, they probably were make, they probably made molten images. They were probably idol makers. Okay, and so God uses the wicked to judge His people to put pressure on them. And so here they are, going on without God, and suddenly they're faced with something bigger than they are. So they need God. And the children of Israel cried and out to Yahweh. You bet they did. For Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So where are we? 2017. So since 1997, can you think that far back, they had been having a hard time from ISIS, right? That's what had been going on. God had sent a judgment on them because they were disobedient. They weren't following his ways. And, of course, 900 chariots. Now, nine in the Bible is a number that's two meanings to it linked together. One is the number of finality. It's a number of finality, and it's a number of judgment. So it's not surprising. I mean, the Holy Spirit doesn't need to tell us there were 900 chariots. It's just there's a lot of chariots. But he gives us the numbers, and when the Bible puts numbers, pay attention. It's being specific. So he's telling us that there was a final judgment that was coming upon them, and they needed to pay attention. And they had been under severe pressure. God has sent in the judgment troops. He's had enough. He's been patient and patient and patient. Now there's going to be something tough happen. But, but... He harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth or Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. This is before the rise of Saul and David and the whole kingship. This is when Israel is being ruled by godly judges. They were those who walked with God, who heard God. And this woman is called a prophetess. Deborah is a woman in touch with God. In a completely different situation, it was said to me, um, uh, like it was last weekend, about a, something I was involved. Women tend to be more sensitive to the Holy Spirit than men. We're talking about today, and, and I have to say that is often my experience. And um, I, I praise the Lord for my wife and her sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, but that is often the case. And here we have a godly woman who is doing something which is quite exceptional. Now, it's not just exceptional culturally. That is, for their culture, which was a male leadership culture, it was exceptional, I'm not denying that, but it was exceptional biblically. God's normal pattern for government, and we're going to separate government out and, and uh, rulership, is male. That's in the Bible to this day. Doesn't mean that women shouldn't be in ministry, of course not. Doesn't mean that women shouldn't be in leadership, of course not, doesn't mean that. But it does set the pattern. But God can make exceptions to this pattern. And he does, particularly when the men are not there. Or the men transpire to be more like women than the women. Then he has to raise up. You understand something about God and his view of you and me. We're genderless. We are all sons of God. So don't give in to the political correctness of trying to be nice and say sons of God are no daughters of God. That is, in fact, condescending. We are all sons of God. Reverse it, though, just to be balanced. Men, 
Brothers, we are all part of the bride of Christ. We are all part of a very feminine expression of what God has done through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, he loved the church and he gave himself for her. And then it does the whole thing of comparison of husband and wife, Adam and Eve, Christ and the church. So there's a femininity. And God doesn't, you and I need to see things from the divine perspective. So God sees an equality. In Christ there is neither male nor female. Right. So we need to see that. At the same time, respecting that God has put a divine order in the scripture and we should follow that. But here is a woman, a godly woman, who is taken to be a judge. And the situation has changed. We see these godly women in the scriptures. If I might take a few of them. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. And you find that in the Old Testament, they're often, they're godly and used of the Lord. But they're often a type or a picture of the nation of Israel and its relationship with God. In the New Testament, you have Mary, Martha, Lydia, Priscilla, godly women. We also have ungodly women in the Bible too. We're going to come on one of them um, at the very end, you know, Caesar's mother. But you have Jezebel and you have uh, others you can pick up from the scripture who represent a wicked spirituality. So the godly women represent a spirituality that is godly, is holy, is uh, either in Israel or in the church. I gave both New and Old Testament examples. Whereas other women represent a corrupted, evil spirituality. And you see that in the scriptures. So we have a woman in touch with God. Not all Israel was apostate at this time. She is a woman who is a prophetess, so she hears the word of God. Remember, a prophet doesn't just tell the future, he or she does, but they bring the word of God. They tell forth what God has to say. And this godly woman had something to say. She has, in this slightly unusual situation where God has dealt with the divine order differently, and he's put a woman in charge. He's actually doing, and he's going to show it here in the passage, he's actually saying to the men, come on, men, there's something to live up to here. Sometimes it takes that in a church for there to be godly anointed women. And the problem can be that some men, we being lazy bunch, we men, that some men can say, all right, let the girls do it, and we'll follow along. Yes, let the girls do it, but you get as, in, as deeply involved as you possibly can. I would say to every single person in this room who is part of this church, have you found your place of service? Have you found your place of service in the body here, male and female? Certainly, three women stood up here and showed us that they had found their place of service. And I don't say this to flatter them, but just to encourage them. I know the Spirit of God was at work, and I'm sure we all did. So, in the absence of male leadership here, you know what? Deborah's called. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, they're coming up for decisions that are beyond themselves, and they want to hear what God has to say. It's not about the woman or the man. It's about the word of God. That's what it's about. We don't want to be sitting at the feet of some clever clogs that thinks he knows or she knows what they can tell us and tell us what to do. Many, many, many years ago, 
way back when there was a lot of stuff in the 70s going on in Bradford on the shepherding and discipleship movement. Some of you may remember that. I was part of another shepherding and discipleship movement, which wasn't part of Bradford. And it wasn't any better. It probably, was, it probably wasn't any worse either. But, you know, people thought they could tell other people what to do. That's not the case. What we seek to do with one another in pastoral care is point one another to the word of God and let God speak. And that's what the prophetess does. But sometimes God speaks and she has to take an initiative. Verse 6, Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh God of Israel commanded, Go out and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. So they're up in the north of Israel. And he wants, she says, God has spoken. No, this is not Deborah's idea. God has spoken. Has not Yahweh, God of Israel, commanded? And he's commanded war. Because he's dealt with Israel for 20 years. He's now going to show them his glory, but he's going to show them a weakness that's within their midst. And that is that the men go weak at the knees. All right, here we go. And against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitudes at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. So 900 chariots, by the sounds of it, they didn't have any chariots, right? So from a military background, so if we think of the, um, the 900 chariots as what we call APC, armored personnel carriers, um, like gun weapons, 900 of them, that's a lot of men, right? And they won't be coming on their own. They will be coming with a large number of infantry. Doesn't tell us any of the more of the details there, but we can work something out. And we can see we're in a little bit of a Gideon situation here, like they are outnumbered. But God has said, take 10,000. I'm going, by the important, he said, I'm going to deliver them into your hand. Okay? They've been bashing you up for 20 years, but it's over. If you'll listen to me through Deborah, do what you've got to do because we're going to have a victory. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. You big baby, right? But you see, this is what has happened after 20 years of oppression and repression and 20 years of absence of God's men at the center of the nation. There's weakness. There is lack of faith. And lack of faith is not lack of positive attitude. Lack of faith is those who are not believing what God has said in his word. And he's shown it. He's just told him what God has said, and he wants the person to go with him. He needs the prophet. He needs to lean on the person. We need to lean on the word of God. Whoever the person is, whoever the preacher is, whoever the prophet is, it does not matter. It's the word of God where the power and the strength is in our lives, in our little personal situations, in our church situation, whatever it might be, or nationally. We need to lean on God. If we went back 50, 60 years or so, maybe 70 years, and such an event had taken place in Manchester, there would have been a national call to prayer. I haven't heard it. I may have missed it. I may have missed it. But I haven't heard anyone call 
the nation to prayer this Sunday. I'm sure there have been many churches who have rightly, like we have done tonight and you did this morning, taken up this before the throne of grace. But as a national entity, I don't think so. And so here we have a Deborah in charge, and she'll go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. She's a prophetess, remember. That's a future statement. It's not very far into the future. It's going to happen. But she has just prophesied, and she's not talking about herself. Yeah? Already, she's the judge. And Barak here is leading the army, but he's not going to get the honor. God's not going to reject him. God's not going to bring any further discipline on him, but he's going to lose reward. Do you hear me? He's going to lose reward. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be faithless and lose such reward as God has for us. So on we go. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. So now we're getting the order of battle and what goes on. Now Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, that's Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. So these are Gentiles. The Gent the, Moses' father-in-law and, and their tribes kind of fallen in the shadow of Israel, and uh, they were actually invited. Maybe we, maybe we just should um, turn to that passage. Did I write the note down? Let me have a look. Um, da -da. Yes, it's... Hmm. No, I didn't. It's over the page. We'll probably get there later. There's a, there's a passage in Numbers that, that spells this out for us, but we'll go there later. Listen. Right. So here we've got folks who support the Jewish people. They're Gentiles, and they're in support of the Jewish people. Now, Heber the Kenite, the children of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree, which is at Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered all his chariots, 900. So they're being used in a way to, to set this trap. God is using them to set the trap for Sisera and the Canaanite armies because he is going to obliterate them. He's going to stop 20 years of oppression and he's going to defeat them so spectacularly that the very last verse that was read to us, the land had rest for 40 years. Totally different. The alternative to being judged and disciplined with an enemy for 20 years. So Sisera gathered all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, just said again to emphasize it to us, and all the people were with him from Hazaset, Hagoim, to the river Kishon. So he's got a big army. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which Yahweh has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not Yahweh gone out before you? So one has the feeling that that Barak was a little more casual about this than Deborah was. And she's still having to exercise leadership to him, even in terms of the time and place of the battle. You know? Well, that's not her, whether she's male or female, that's not her. That is her in her role as the voice of God to the people. It's God who's speaking. Get up. It is time to go. And then here is the most spectacular verse of the passage, I think. And Yahweh 
routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, isn't that ironic? He's got 900 chariots, but at the end of the battle, he's hightailing it on his two feet. Off he goes. It's called um, a hasty, disorganized withdrawal from the battlefield. The 900 chariots are gone. Yes, God used Barak, but the scripture is telling us something, and we'll see a little bit of something else in the next chapter when we pick a few verses here and there in it. We don't have time to do it all. But the scripture is saying God, Yahweh God, intervened, and he killed him. He killed them. He dealt with it absolutely ruthlessly. We find that difficult sometimes to think about, that our God kills people. He does. Think of the sons of Korah in the desert. The land split open, down they went. Yeah. You go to the New Testament with Peter, you can see Ananias and Sapphira. God took them home. It was better to take them home that they lost no more reward through their disobedience. God uses a situation like this to come in and display his displeasure. We never ever want to be an enemy of God. I don't know you here. I know some of you. But I don't know if you are truly born again of the Spirit of God or you're a visitor or you're on the journey to becoming a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or you're just casual but you like religious meetings. I don't know. But I advise you very strongly, keep a low profile until you know the Lord God through Jesus as your Savior. Never make God your enemy. Remember I said there's just people like all of us. We're all sinners. And then there are men who drop into carnality, and women too, into the very depths of darkness, where something grips their soul. God can release them and deliver them in a second, of course, but into criminal activity. And then finally, and I know a little of this, even recently, into that which is demonic. Another spirit from Satan comes into their bodies and inhabits them and, and influences and in some cases absolutely controls behavior. So you never want to be an enemy of God, do you understand? If you just want to be casual about God and, and live this life and hope for the best, I, I don't think you should do that. I've counseled you to come to Jesus as your savior, but don't, don't, don't become somebody who wars against God, who rails against him publicly, who swears and curses against him privately. Just keep a low profile because you can see what happens to the enemies of God. They get routed. Do you understand? Tough, tough judgment. And then we move on to a really wonderful account of history. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harashet Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Do you understand? Not one left alive. Everybody dies. This is the Bible. Okay? This isn't politically correct, I know. 
But this is what the Bible is telling you about what happened. When the judgment of God comes, it is thorough against those that he had used to bring a pressure judgment on his own people. What he did was he used the wickedness of the heart of Jabin, king of Canaan. The Canaanites are so bad. There are um, tablets showing activities in which they indulged, held by the British Museum, Museum, that they will not put on public display. Now, in the 21st century, that's unusual, right? Because decorum has gone. These are really carnal, wicked, animalistic, dreadful people. So their oppression against Israel would have been dreadful. And God used that. He turned it around to deal with the recalcitrant, uh, the, 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 uh, the rebellious people of Israel who wouldn't live by his love and his law. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, wife of Heber, the Kenite, that's from the Moses' father-in-law's family, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. All right? So here is the leader of the army. This is the major general, five-star general. This is what he is, in charge of the whole army. Okay? Everything, everything is, as they say, is the way the army would say it, phrases I could not use whilst preaching. So I would say it's gone to pot, right? Everything is just gone in all directions. And there he is on his feet. And he comes across someone who has kept themselves fairly objective. They've not joined with Israel, but they don't oppose Israel. And they've not joined with him, but, they've, but they're on goodly terms. And so he, he sees a potential ally, and he's got to hide, right? So he gets in the tent and he's going to hide under a blanket. But, of course, he has been under hot pursuit. And we're in the desert here, and he's been running. And so how does he feel? Ugh, right? He is hot and no doubt sweaty. And he says, verse 19, Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Now, this is milk in the desert. I, I know a wee bit about this, and I'll just tell you briefly. This milk is fermented drink. This, <laughs> this is alcoholic, right? And so he takes this in, 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 in chapter 5, it calls it cream as well. Or is it butter? I can't remember. Some translations might say butter. But, he, but he, he's taking something. It's, it's a, a soporific. It's going to make him sleep, right? So he's going to take this. I think just, you know, a lot of milk might have made him a bit dozy in any case. And, and off he goes. And she covered him. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man in here, you shall say no. So you want, you know, you'll lie for me to protect me. Then Jael. Now, this is a very exceptional circumstance. And if you've got a bad husband, this is not an example for you, Right? We're going to have to take this. This was literal, and God does kill people. God does it. Okay, We never do. But in these exceptional circumstances, then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg. Now, tent peg for that is going to be about this length. Can you see? It's, about, it's a long thing as a tent peg. These are big, heavy tents made of skins. Okay, These are not no, something you buy in B&Q that's made of nylon, right? This is a big heavy, so they have very large tent pegs. Sorry, to get back in. And, 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 and took a tent peg 
and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple and it went down into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died, as you do, when a tent peg of that size goes right through your head. Right. Tough stuff. And the glory for dealing with the major leader of the enemies of God. This is a man who has warred against God. This is a man who's been involved in the most disgraceful and awful activities. I cannot discuss them. This is a man who for 20 years has opposed the people of Israel, the chosen of God. This is a man whose sins are up to his neck. He's getting his judgment. He's an enemy of God. And then as Berak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into the tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. So don't think of a little clothes peg. This is a big thing. Right? So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel, and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan. Until, did I say king of Israel back there? I think I did. So on, the day, on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel, and the hand of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So God initiated this. They didn't suddenly actually all become repentant, did they? No, they got a word from God through the prophetess, and weakly, without great strength, without great bravado, they followed it. Some of them, we realized, as we, we read in chapter 5, they ruined and some of the they didn't join in some of the tribes. They were, well, no, we're not going along. But some of the tribes did, and some of the tribes didn't. And God uses a faithful woman to execute his judgment. And, of course, Barak loses out not to Deborah, but to Jael. And the glory for taking out the representative of Satan. That's what you've got to see him as. Or an antichrist figure. That's what he is. He's an anti-God, anti-Christ figure against the enemies of, against the people of God because he's against the God of the people, right? Taken out and the glory goes to her. Girls, you can do this to this very day because you have the tent peg and the hammer and you can pray and you can in all seriousness go before God and you can intercede and cry to God for him to do great and mighty things positively and against his enemies. You can cry legitimately for the downfall of Kim Jong-un and all that his dynasty has established in North Korea. All that more would do it. That is a wicked regime and it needs to be brought down. I pray it. I pray it pretty well every night. My wife will testify to that. I also pray that God will be merciful and that Kim Jong-un will open a Bible and turn to Christ. You realize that Kim Jong-un, if you go further back to his great-grandparents, Kim Jong-un's great-grandparents served with Presbyterian missionaries in the 1907 to 1947 revival in North Korea. And then along came a rebellious son, the first Kim, that took over after the Korean, well, it was at the heart of the Korean War and was the first of the communist dynasty. 
And then his son, Kim Jong-il, he took the whole thing to another level of wickedness. This is a man whose people were eating grass, and it is reported that he brought in from Europe a container load of of Hennessy XO whiskey. Not just for himself, but to give out. A wicked, evil man. A man who was afraid of flying and being... um, uh, obviously afraid of being attacked, and he, he has a network of rail tunnels throughout the country. He spent billions upon billions on himself. I remember praying and thinking he will not get to his four, th- three score years and ten. He didn't. He popped it at 62. And then this tubby little quick pip squeak, he arises, and he's going back to the wicked. Everybody thought things would be great because he had been educated in Switzerland. He'd been out of North Korea. And the first thing he did with his access to the coffers was he built a ski resort. Do you remember that? Do you know that? One of the first actions he took, he built a ski resort for the people. No, he didn't. He built it for himself. Now, you can legitimately pray for God to deal with these situations, but pray for him to be, to be saved. Pray for many in North Korea to be saved. I take this one because I can talk about it with some information, Okay. But there are other places that we can pray for God to work. And then the hand of the Lord in judgment is just as valid as God's hand in mercy and grace. And in fact, sometimes one needs the other judgment to bring people to seek the mercy and the grace. So they completely destroyed it. Now, we've got to cover two chapters, so we're going to zip and just look at one or two highlight verses in chapter 5. In many ways, um, my, my, my selfishness would like to preach chapter 5 and not chapter 4, if I'm honest. So what we're going to look at first, look at where you turn if you're there to verses 6 and 7. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, or Anat, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted. And the travelers walked along the byways. Village life had ceased in Israel. Why? Because they were under constant attack. Okay? So natural, normal life has, has dried up. Life is very difficult. Until, until I, Deborah, arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods and there was war in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So it was a difficult time. But then God calls a mother in Israel. That is a wonderful biblical definition and expression. A mother in Israel. There are godly women, and I would say there are godly women of a certain age, further up the chain, who are mothers in Israel. You see, this woman is a prophetess. And she has the heart of a prophet, prophetess. Her heart is number one for God. Her heart is number one for God. Number two for God's people. She has a compassionate, loving heart for the people of God. You remember the Lord Jesus expressing that, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that I might take you under my wings like chicks under my wings. A similar thought from Paul saying, you have many teachers, but few fathers. There needs to be today in the body of Christ, women I speak to particularly, but men too who have a motherly and a fatherly attitude towards the brethren. 
to care for them, to provide for them. Do you have a mother's heart for God's people? It's a difficult one because it's asking you to take pain. There's not a mother in this room that hasn't had pain from the family, is there? Not a mother that has seen, and we think particularly in this week, who has not seen anguish, sorrow, and difficulty. And in the body of Christ, we need a volunteer because the reward is such, it is so great. God is looking for those who will arise as a mother in Israel. Now, I don't know the circumstances of this church at all, really. I know that there are two fine men at the head of it, so I don't think we've got a problem with, without, of not having male leadership. But maybe there is some ministry somewhere that needs you to stand up, lady, sister, to stand up, to put yourself in the place. You don't put yourself in the place for ministry. No, think of ministry as service. Think of service as lowliness. Some of you may remember my testimony. I got saved whilst in um, domestic service in a large home to Sir Clive Milne's Coates. Okay. And we had domestic servants. We were servants. That's our role in the body. It's my role tonight. I'm not here like the management, like you know, some important, impressive person that comes and preaches. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Tonight I take the water of the word to wash you on the feet. I'm to be lowly. And when we adapt that, adopt that attitude and don't think of ministry as being we're big and important or it's a career or anything like that, that's, that's going to take it away from you. Then you can put yourself forward to serve. Everybody should have a place to serve. Verse 15 we'll jump to. It's an unusual one. And the princes of Issachar, or the leaders, or my princes of Issachar, were with Deborah. So we're with Deborah. Hey, hallelujah. That was taking a stand with the word of God. Remember, the person is important. The gender isn't important. It's the word that God brings. So why would the people, particularly the princes of Issachar, be with Deborah? And the answer is to be found in the book of Chronicles Chapter 12 and verse 32. 1 Chronicles 12, 32. Remember, she's hearing from God, and she knew it was the time, not 19 years, not 18 years, not 21 years in, but in the 20 years, it was time for God's people under Barak to get up and deal with the enemy. God had finished with the judgment. He was going to give them rest. And it says in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. This is how they had something in common with Deborah, didn't they? They thought like she did. So that's an interesting little verse that's just in there that helps us understand what was going on. And then we get to verse 24. Most blessed among women is Jael. This is the Hebrew Bible proclaiming a blessing upon a Gentile woman for what she did for Israel. Bold, strong, Gentile jail is blessed. Great, that was great in her lifetime. But you know something, that blessedness is eternal because this word is eternal. It is never, ever going to end. Heaven has spoken. God has spoken. So it's worth getting your tent peg out 
in the intercessory realm and hammering it wherever God tells you to be because you will be blessed. Oh, and I found this bit here in the S. I don't know why I wrote it there. Wrong place, but I'll just read to you from the book of Numbers and you'll, 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 you'll know what I'm trying to say. Numbers chapter 10, 29 it is, apparently. Yes, now Moses said to Hodab, the son of Reliot, or Jethro, the Midianite, um, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place in which Yahweh said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for Yahweh has promised good things to Israel. And he, that's Jethro, said to him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and my, to my relatives. So Moses said, please do not leave inasmuch as you know how we are to camp in the wilderness and you can be our eyes. Okay, you can see what the Canaanites are up to. And if it shall, and it shall be, if you will go with us, indeed it shall be that whatever good Yahweh will do to us, the same we will do to you. So they departed from the mountain of Yahweh on a journey of three days. Right. So you see the connection there, and this is this is where JL's background is, this is where she comes from. Okay. And now they're into the land. Time has moved on. And she blessed, she blessed is she among the women in tents. He asked for water, she gave him milk, she brought him out cream in a lordly bowl. And that's the stuff, that's the stuff that is called it's a soporific, it's a sleeping draft, right? Off you go. And he went into a sleep from which he never awoke. And he sunk into a judgment eternally, no doubt. The great tragedy, the great tragedy of last week is that there were some there who died and went to a Christless eternity. It is my personal belief that under a certain age, which the Lord would know that these children went straight to be with the Lord Jesus, the little ones, but they were adults. We have a friend who knew one personally. They met together at a school gate some years ago. I only say that, nobody knows what's around the corner. And we need to make sure that we personally have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And when we do, that we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth. And we tell others, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. I want to close with two th final thoughts. We read of this wonderful woman and what she did. She stretched her hand out to the tent peg. To the workman's hammer, she pounded Caesarea. She pierced his hand. She split and struck through the temple. We're getting an awful lot of detail here. God is being very insistent on what is what He is doing. Okay. At her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. At her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, he fell dead. God dealt with in judgment. And then along comes another mother. We've had a mother in Israel, and now we've got a mother in Canaan. We've got a mother who hears God. We've got a mother now who does not hear God. We've got a mother who is concerned about spiritual matters, Deborah. We've got a woman, and we'll see what she was concerned about. The mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? Her wisest ladies answered her, Yes. She answered herself, Are they not dividing the spoil to every man, a girdle or two, for Sisera, plunder of dyed garments, plunder of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. Here is a woman whose emphasis was material goods, 
a selfish concern for her own, for the trinkets of life, for sexual gratification. That's what it's about. Oh, my son's out doing a bit of rape and pillage. Right? And she's proud of him. Two comparative women, the godly woman and the ungodly woman. The woman who hears the Lord and the woman who only hears herself. Her wisest ladies answered her, and she, yes, she answered herself. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. And still to this day, still to this day, the alternative rests before every human being, male or female, to be someone who follows the Lord their God through salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, or someone who goes for the material life and the trinkets and indeed all the other gratifications that come. But we'll finish on a positive note. And the land had rest for 40 years. Now 40, that is the number in the Bible of trial and testing, but in the sense of training and probation. Moses was 40 years in Egypt, okay? Then he was 40 years on the backside of the desert with Jethro. And then he was 40 years traveling. His life of 120 years is divided in three forties. How long was the Lord Jesus on the mountain of temptation? Forty days. The rain that came on the ark at the flood took 40 days. Warning to Nineveh, 40 days. 40, 40, 40. You can go through the scriptures. We'll close with one passage from the book of Acts that, that, that clearly says it. And the land had rest. It had Shabbat. And rest has a purpose. Rest is not a lazy excuse. The Sabbath, and I don't mean any particular day, but the concept of Sabbath with God is with God. To learn of him. To be in his company. To be in God's place. Sometimes, beloved brothers and sisters, and I speak as a guilty one in this, the hubbub of life goes flying on including ministry and meetings and, and just taking time aside to rest with God. Sometimes the hubbub of life is such, I've got to take time aside to rest because I will find myself resting with God in the land of Nod. Right? I'll fall asleep. I've fallen asleep in many prayer meetings over the years. But when you get to a place where your body is rested, we need to cut time for God. Now, I, I talk to the Lord all the time. I'm sure you do. I go to meetings. You do. But you, and, I, and I have prayer time and quiet time with my wife in the morning and so on. And sometimes we have to discipline ourselves because the pressure of what's got to be done that day is in. No, we will take time. We will take time and, and, and use it. But also on my own, just to be with the Lord. That's when he has spoken to me. You know that I'm part of a group of brethren throughout the country, worldwide in fact, who take an interest in the last days and prophecy. And I say this with not trying to be a clever clogs. The Manchester bomb was not a surprise to us. We were waiting for it. Not that specifically, not Manchester, in fact, 
If I went with my mind, I would have thought probably London. But I expected that in 2017, there was going to be a very dramatic action. You need to appreciate that the whole system of Islam denies the Father and the Son, and that the scripture says, he who denies the Father and the Son is Antichrist. Islam alone is not Antichrist. There are other parts, but it is most certainly part of the system of Antichrist that is growing and developing in the last days. We are on the stepping stones to the final horizon for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these events will be more frequent and more intense. You and I have to appreciate that the judgment of God has begun in this world. But praise God, there are Deborahs and there are JLs. Praise God that there are men and women who are reaching out to snatch the brands from the burning. And we are seeing men and women saved in all our churches and ministries and communities. God is still at work. Grace is still available. The power of the gospel is completely unchanged. It has as much power as ever. And there are more of us, and we have greater resources in terms of understanding his word. We have the internet. We have a whole source of things. So we are not defeated, but we are at war. We are not defeated, but we need to accept we are not at the summer Sunday school picnic. We are at war. And I don't mean at war with Islam. I mean we are at war with the system of darkness. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. The coming of the Lord Jesus is near. And to conclude, the rest that we, rate, the rest that we have with him that feeds us, that nourishes us, that strengthens us and then sends us back to the battlefield, this is what Jesus did. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. To whom, that's to the apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. So I can't wait to get hold of him and ask him. I want to know what, what were all these that are actually not recorded? No, isn't that so tempting? That's just to make you long for heaven. Ah. You know the wonderful story of, of a dear brother who was dying and he was in his garden and was visited by this precious sister. And she said, oh, the garden's beautiful. She said, just wait till you see the garden in heaven. Oh, he said, yeah, it'd be wonderful. He said, I, I'm waiting to see his library. <laughs> There's so much to learn. To whom he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them, the apostles, during 40 days. What did he do in the 40 days? And speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So they had rest for 40 years. 40 years was to get closer and closer and closer to God. Unfortunately, we know the history. They come close, they go away. They come close, they go away. But not you. Not you. Surely not you. You want to walk with God from this moment until Jesus comes.